Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for today. Another chance in which we get to worship you and you provided this creative means for us to be able to reach out and talk to one another, Lord. I know it's been an encouragement to me as I hear throughout the week uh, various people reporting on how the sermon impacted them and how you're using your word and your truth uh, to make a difference in people's lives. I pray that your gospel would go forth, Lord, that we would focus on you and your word as the main things that accomplish your work. And I pray, Lord, that um, whatever is said today will be your truth and your purpose above all else. We thank you and praise you and pray that you'd comfort us and give us wisdom and strength in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. A giant parking lot, a tram coming to pick us up. Strollers and sunscreen, t-shirt and shorts, water bottles and giant bags. Where am I? The ride was called Time Traveler and the place, Silver Dollar City. If you've never been there before, it's probably familiar to other or similar to other theme parks like Disney World or Cedar Point or Six Flags or whatever. But this is the place my family and my extended family had chosen to go for our family reunion. Having managed all of that excitement and energy and stress and other things, we're on the tram, we're through the gates, we're coming out the front door, and the first question is, Dad, where do we go next? What do we get to do? Of course, I'm a dad, right? So I've got my giant map out here, turned halfway this or that, not knowing what to do, but I see just around the corner this sign for this ride, and it's called Time Traveler. Now, for those of you who don't know, Time Traveler at that time was the brand new, biggest, bestest, most scariest, craziest, wildest ride in the whole park. And I knew that, my wife knew that, but our kids didn't necessarily know that quite yet. So one of my boys said to me, hey, Dad, can we ride this one? Can we ride this one? I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure. And my wife looks at me with one of those wife-like looks. like. But I'm thinking to myself, hey, self, you know, this could work out all right. I mean, if we get the biggest and the scariest out of the way at the very beginning, then everything else after that is child's play. And so my son asked again, he said, Dad, can we ride this one? I'm like, well, it's pretty fast. He's like, uh, do you think I'll like it? And I'm like, you could. He's like, is it scary? I'm like, well, you know, a little scary. My wife's eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger this whole time. And she's like, it's okay. We got this. So wife says, okay, whatever. And dad and little boy run off to go down Time Traveler. It was early in the morning. No one's in line. This is the perfect time to ride it. Start of the day, get the hard ones out of the way fast. At least that's what's going through my mind. As it turns out, it wasn't the best of decisions. In fact, the exact opposite of what I hoped would happen happened. Instead of him being prepared to ride anything else the rest of the day, Instead, he refused to ride anything else the rest of the day. 
We spent the whole day battling back and forth, and I made my day miserable, I made his day miserable, and I made his mom's day miserable, and messed up a lot of other days probably as well. That was a difficult day, and really that was a bad decision on dad's part. Today we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and what we're going to see is there's a lot of different suffering that goes on in our world. The Bible is never shy about that. The Bible shows all kinds of suffering. It's a realistic, rated R, difficult, hard read because it's a real world book. It shows suffering in its truest sense in the, in the most clear light. And we know from our own experience that there's a lot of different kinds of suffering in this world. There's suffering that others bring upon us and there's suffering that we bring upon ourselves. The suffering that we're talking about today is not the suffering that we bring upon ourselves. It's not because of bad decisions that we make, but instead it is the external suffering. It's suffering as a participation in the work of Christ. So unlike the Silver Dollar City experience, unlike the roller coaster decision, this is a different kind of suffering. This is suffering that is brought to us from outside of us, not suffering that we bring upon ourselves. And I want to ask the question today then, okay, so with that in mind, with that type of suffering, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of external suffering that comes into my life and what do I do with it? What's the purpose and what's the approach? Suffering in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. If you have your Bibles, like any Bible, like a screen Bible or old school Bible, anything will do. Just open it up, 1 Peter chapter 4. You even may want to leave a Bible next to this device, like if it's your TV or your computer. Just leave one there so that next week you've got a Bible to pull out and follow along with us. I'm going to read from the fourth chapter, beginning in the 12th verse of 1 Peter chapter 4. It says this, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a result of your own doing, or as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let them not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will become of the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And... If the righteous is scarcely scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's the point? Or what's the purpose? Suffering comes into our life, either unannounced or uninvited, but either way it's here. What's the point? I want to cover these two things today, the point or purpose, 
and also our approach. And I think it should really help you. It helps me, particularly in this first part, as we talk about the point. This is an important paradigm to wrap our minds around to figure out how should I really think about this thing? Because indeed, we've all wrestled with it. Like, is God good? Is God loving? Is he in control? How could he let this come into my life? What's the point or purpose of suffering? Now, I'll give you three of those. And the first one I want to start with is this. It's refinement and conformity. Refinement and conformity. Well, I think for a lot of us, we can get to the point where we say, yeah, we kind of recognize the outcome of suffering is often refinement. An easy example that I think of is the process of weightlifting. I know some people hate lifting weights and some people love lifting weights, but wherever you're at on that scale, you understand that the process is fairly simple. In order to get stronger, you have to lift something heavy. And in that process, as you're pushing yourself, as you're stretching your muscles, as you're creating that strain, those muscle fibers are stretched and they break down and they kind of tear apart. And then you stop and you rest that evening and you wait and your body builds it up again. And so that the next time you come back to it, in theory, you've been rebuilt even stronger than what you were before. Now, of course, in the process, that day that you lift weights, you're going to be tired. The next day, you're going to be sore. And you may come to the point where you're like, I'm not sure if I really like this or not. But the reality is, if you're going to get stronger, you have to go through that process. There's no way to get stronger without lifting weights. So, too, with suffering and refinement. The Bible in this chapter refers to suffering is sort of a crucible of refinement, that it's a very hot and difficult place to be. It's going to make you sweat. It's going to be tough. And in fact, in verse 12, it actually uses the word fiery. And when you think of the word fire, we often think of the word judgment. But you got to understand that in the Bible, there are two different kinds of fire. There's the fires of judgment, indeed, that are reserved for the wicked, the ungodly, the unrepentant, those who have not believed in the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. That's one kind of fiery judgment. But another kind of fiery judgment is that of refinement, where God allows you to go through this difficult circumstance or even brings it into your life so that you will be purified by having the dross or the excess or the yucky brought to the surface and then God in his grace scrapes it away and makes your worth more than that of silver or gold. That's what it's talking about in verses 17 and 18. As we read this verse, we look at it and we say, hmm, this is a little bit strange. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And a lot of us think of judgment as only that one category, like bad. I did something bad, I'm in trouble. But with the fiery context, the crucible of refinement, what this specific passage is saying is, yeah, for those who are believers, they will be refined. They will go through judgment, but it'll show them to be who they are and they will be purified and brought forth to be beautiful. But for those who are unbelievers, if that's what happened to the believers, imagine what's going to happen to those who have no life, no God, no Holy Spirit, no forgiveness inside. There won't be anything there. It will all be burned up. And so again, it's a really good point just to remind you, wherever you're at in life, 
you better have Jesus. Make sure you do because this trials are going to come your way one way or another. But how you go through them is entirely different based on whether or not you have Jesus. So the first purpose or the first point, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12, and then 17 and 18, is that trials or suffering comes into our life for the purpose of refinement and also conformity. Earlier in the book, in chapter 2, verse 21, the Apostle Peter said, For to this... You have been called. Naturally, we ask the question, well, what is this? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So in other words, you've been called to suffer just like Jesus has. If he is the leader and we are the followers, we are going in the same direction that he is. We are connected to him or coupled to him like a engine train and caboose the thing that holds us together is the holy spirit and as he pulls us along and we are connected to christ and whatever he goes through we go through and as christ goes through suffering and is even refined and bringing glory to god so too are we going through suffering and being refined and bringing glory to god we're being conformed or refined or becoming more and more like jesus the first point is that the purpose of suffering, external ones that God allows to come into our life, is to refine us and conform us to Christ. Well, that's great, Pastor Jeremy. I mean, I want to be more like Jesus and stuff, but that's hard. It's not something I enjoy. I don't really get it. Um, I, I don't know if I'm that motivated. Well, let me give you a little assurance. The second thing trials or suffering does is actually provides us an assurance. An assurance, how is that the case? Well, verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, chapter 4, say, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, if you share in the suffering, you get a share in the glory as well. Verse 13 has this beautiful phrase in it that super duper jumped off the page to me. And it's interesting how the Holy Spirit takes individual words and does this. But if you look at this verse and listen to these words, it's so essential to who you are as a Christian. It says, you share Christ. You have a share in Christ. Here it's saying you have a share in Christ's suffering, but not only his suffering, in his glory. In other words, as the Apostle Paul says, to be in Christ, there's this beautiful thing that happens when the Holy Spirit unites you to him is that you have a share of him. You have eternal life. You have Jesus. You have a share of God's goodness now that has been implanted inside of you. You share in, of, through, by, for Jesus Christ. Suffering shows you that. If you weren't suffering, if you had the easy road, you'd have a different life than he does, and that means you'd have nothing to do with him. But rejoice, for insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, you also share in his glory. If you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. If you die with him, you will be resurrected with him. If he reigns in glory, then you will reign beside him in glory as well. Suffering is actually an assurance. I know we don't think of it that way, and that's kind of hard, and that's why this is a big deal to think about it from a biblical perspective. Say, look, this suffering assures me that I'm with Christ. Number one, 
It's a refinement. It conforms us to Christ. Number two, it assures us that we have a part of him, that we are in it with him. And number three, it is an honor. It is an honor to suffer. Now, how in the world can that be the case? I'm going to jump to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Um, it goes big T, medium T, little T, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. In your Bible, 2 Thessalonians, in the first chapter, in the fifth verse, says this. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Remember we talked about all that judgment stuff? That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. This is the evidence that you have been found worthy. If you're asking the question, why do I have so much suffering in my life? It's because God thinks you're worthy of it. Listen, if I'm a soccer coach and I, ha- I have a big game ahead of us, I'm only going to play my best players and I'm going to put them out at key moments. If they need a break, I'll take it out at a time where it's not as crucial. But the point is, is I trust certain ones to perform under pressure more than others. So too with God. If you are suffering more than other people, that means he trusts you with that more than other people. One example is Job. In the Old Testament, we talk about the patience of Job or long-suffering is Job or whatever else. But remember how this story starts. Satan comes to God and says, hey, blah, 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 blah. And God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's got the good stuff. He can handle it. Don't hold back. Give him all you got. He'll still be there at the end of the day and he will never curse me. Saying like, yeah, right. He's like, no, really. I trust this guy. He is worthy of suffering for the cause of Christ. If you're suffering a lot, that means God believes in you. It means he's counting you worthy of it. He's put these challenges in your life that are unique to you because you're the only one prepared to handle it. Whatever that may be, in parenting and work and relationships and loss, God believes in you. You're worthy of it. Number one, it's a refinement. Number two, it's an assurance. And number three, it's an honor. Share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ as a good soldier. It is a refinement, an assurance, and an honor. So, suffering. What's the purpose or the point? It refines us and makes us more like Jesus. It assures us that we're part of him and it honors us because God considers us worthy. That's the first part. The second part that I want to address is this. Okay, so that's that's the purpose. So then practically speaking, how do I do this? Like, how do I make it through suffering? Because it's really neat and tight on paper when I can sit down and read it and say, yeah, those are some good points, but what do I do when it actually comes into my life? Well, verse 19 answers that question for us. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, that's according to God's will, not if you messed it up or I messed it up, like I make a bad decision, but according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The Greek word entrust here is kind of interesting. I chased it down a little bit in the New Testament because I could see this is really the big one. This is what we want to do. We want to entrust. So what does that mean? Well, one of the places that it showed up was in Acts chapter 16, verse 34, 
when it talks about people receiving guests at their home and it says they set food before them. The food was entrusted. It was set before the guest. They took this offering that they had, gave it to the other person, completely relinquished it, and said it's theirs to dispose of however they wish. If they chew part of it and throw it to the dogs, or if they eat all of it, or if they, whatever they do, it's theirs. We're going to completely hand it over or entrust it to them. Another place it's used in the New Testament is when people go on a journey because there weren't necessarily banking systems like ours today, certainly not electronic banking. They would go to a neighbor or a trusted friend and say, hey, here is our life savings. We're going to go away for a couple months. Will you please keep this secure for us until we return? They would entrust it to them. They would have to believe that that person is faithful could handle something valuable and would be faithful to return it when the time was through. This is what it means to entrust. And so as we look at this command in Scripture in verse 19 to entrust our souls to God, that idea is there is that with regard to our lives, with regard to everything we value, with regard to those things we care about most, we need to be able to take those and hand it over to him. We need to say, I am trusting you with this. I'm trusting you with my family. I'm trusting you with my career. I'm trusting you with my finances. That's part of the point of giving is when you give, it's kind of hard because you're relinquishing control. But here's the point of entrusting something is you relinquish its control over to another person. That's hard for us to do, especially as Americans, because we want to hang on, man. We want to guard that. We want to you know, preserve it and protect it because we don't trust other people to do as well with our stuff as we ourselves would. But what this text is telling us specifically to do is with everything in our lives that we value, our rights as Americans, our money, our time, our talents, our treasure, even our families, to entrust those or to hand them over or to give them to God. So how do I do that, Pastor Jeremy? Well, there's a couple words in here that tell us um, specifically what will encourage us to do that. And I'll give you some more points here as we go. But here's the two words I want to point out is we are entrusting our souls to a faithful creator, to a faithful creator. Creator. God is faithful and He is the Creator. And so because He is Creator, it means that He started this whole thing. That our lives are not an accident. That our life is not meaningless. That this suffering does have purpose. And as the architect of the universe, He is ensuring that His design is accomplished. He is the Creator. He is the power. He is the mover and shaker and force that is driving this thing forward. All of history conforms eventually to God's eternal plan. He's the creator. So you can trust him because this is purposeful, it's going somewhere, and he's powerful. But not only that, he's also faithful. Just like a neighbor that you would trust with your safe deposit box or your children or your life savings or your will or whatever, if you're going on a long journey and you're not going to come back, you want to make sure that at the end of that time, whatever you gave to them is completely preserved then this is what God will do. He will preserve your soul as you 
give it over to him, even if your body goes into the ground. Let me bring up that uh, image of the roller coaster for just a second here. It's kind of a fun story. We were there with our extended family, and uh, one of the things about my brother, he's my brother, um, is that when he was a youth pastor, he knew all of these rides very well. So whether it's Thunderation or Fire in the Hole or Powder Keg or Time Traveler or whatever great uh, roller coaster there was, he knew the route. And so inevitably, along the way, at the perfect point, whether it's the plunge or whatever else, there's always a camera set up to take your picture. And you've probably seen those at the end of the ride. They're kind of fun. You know, you have the person who's going like that. You have the other person who's going like that or whatever they're doing. And people have all kinds of funny looks on their face. Some might be closing their eyes or gripping the seats or whatever. My brother would actually pose for the picture so he'd wait right until he saw the camera out of the corner of his eye and then he'd do something like this or he might do this or maybe this (laughs) and right next to the people on either side of him who are going my brother is yawning and taking a nap it was a fun shot to be sure, but the point was, is he was having a little fun with it, but the idea is that if you get on this ride and you're an adult, more likely, more than likely you've already made a logical decision. You're not asking your parent, hey, am I going to like this? But you've said, okay, I believe that if I get on this ride, that at the end of the day, I'm going to get off the ride. I believe that when these bars go over the top of me, that they're going to hold me in. I believe that even though there's going to be twists and turns, there's going to be up and downs, there's going to be fast and slow, there might be in some spots that are a little bit jerky or wobbly, then I'm going to have a good time. And so I'm going to entrust or I'm going to believe the creators or designers of this ride and I'm going to turn my life over to them for this short time period and I'm going to look forward with anticipation to the joy that it brings. So too is the case in suffering. If you believe in God, if you trust Him, if you know that Holy Spirit is the bars coming over the top of your shoulders, then you can get on that ride and you can sit back and you can smile and you can have a good time because you know at the end of the day, you're going to come out okay. So there's a purpose and the approach. And the approach is just to hand it over, to give it to God, to relax, to sit back, enjoy the ride. Hang on, hand it over, and hang on. Hand it over and hang on. If you don't remember anything else from today's sermon, I think that's one that's pretty easy to remember. Last week was the Lord will reward. And this week is hand it over and hang on. Hand it over and hang on. Where where it is your life, you hand it over to trust in God, and then just hang on, buckle down, and be sure to enjoy the ride. This is actually very biblical. I, I know that it sounds like just a roller coaster thing, but if you remember in First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it tells us specifically to gird up our loins. And the idea is, uh, you know, a first century person 
grabbing their robe and pulling it in tight. It's like a weightlifter who grabs a belt and buckles it on before he does his big lift. It is to hold things together tightly. That is what happens in this chapter as well in verse 12 when it says, don't be surprised. Look, if you get on the roller coaster, you know there's going to be some twists and turns. And that's one of the ways in which these things scare you or surprise you as they come out of the dark or they make a quick turn or they go upside down or whatever. But the idea is when you sign up for Christ and you say, I want a part of him, he says, hang on, count the cost because there's going to be some twists. There's going to be some turns and this is going to be scary and you're going to have to trust in me. Are you sure? And if you say yes, man, you better buckle up and hang on. Hold on tight. How do we do that? How do we hold on to Jesus? Well, the Bible actually tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and this is what they say. 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Chapter 10, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians says, take every thought captive. In other words, the way in which we buckle down is not by actually putting a belt on or or bars over our shoulders, but instead by training our brain to think a certain way. How can we not be surprised? Because we've already conformed our mind. We've already taken captive every thought. We have to train our brains. Now understand, some people will probably hear this and go, oh, they're just making Christianity a intellectual cerebral exercise no not at all this is to get at your heart but believe it or not that's where it starts your heart starts with your head and that's the way we're wired we begin with thoughts which transform into feelings which move then into actions when you think ouch that hurts i don't like that or blah 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 then all of a sudden you're stirred and then you react but the reality is the way in which we're wired neurologists tell us is our brains make these connections like ski tracks in the snow and the more we think a certain way the more that path is beaten down and before long we've formed attitudes and philosophies and thoughts and biases and opinions so that anytime we see something or experience it we interpret it in light of that path And so what the Bible is telling us to do is beat down specific paths, train your brain, renew your mind, take every thought captive, make it conform to the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, that's what it means to hang on or buckle in. You know there's going to be suffering. You know there's going to be a cost. But you have to remember there's joy ahead. There's glory at the end that this is an assurance and an honor that we're being conformed to Jesus and he finds you worthy of suffering for his name. So number one, what do you do? You train your brain. Number two, what do you do? You pray. You don't just pray random thoughts. You know, you don't just pray your thoughts. That's why you start with training your brain because praying to anybody or anything isn't going to work. But you pray like Jesus. You pray to God the Father. You pray in a Trinitarian Christian way that James tells us if you're suffering, that this is the way to handle it. James 5.13, if anyone is suffering, let them pray. Let them pray, just like Jesus in the garden. Number one, train your brain. Number two, pray. And number three, sing. You see in the New Testament when the disciples are being persecuted and they're suffering and they're in trouble and they're being chased by the rulers and authorities at that time that Usually they have their meeting, they get together, 
they sing, they have a sermon or something, and then they and they pray and they sing and they go out. The disciples sang a hymn and went out. Peter, sorry, Paul and Silas, when they're in jail, they sing. There's just something about the human psyche that enjoys to sing. Now, you may not be a musician. I understand that. I'm not either. But when I go down the road in my car by myself, if there's a good Christian song that comes on the radio, I'm singing, Katie, bar the door. Sometimes when my family are in the basement or somewhere else, I might just bring our little Bluetooth speaker into the bathroom where I'm showering and shaving and whatever, and I'm singing. Why? Because I know that that's what's going to transform my spirit for the day. If I'm going after the heart attitude that's going to steer the course of my life, I have to intentionally change it. And so I train the brain. I pray and I sing. And those are the things that we do every Sunday in our worship service on purpose, not accidentally or not out of tradition, but we're trying to be conformed to Christ to prepare for suffering and to follow him faithfully and we know that this is what the bible tells us to do so we got to do it it's the only way to live so suffering what's the point and what do we do the point of suffering is that it refines us and conforms us it assures us that we belong to christ and it honors us by saying that we are worthy of suffering for the name. What's the approach? Well, it's just like any old roller coaster. You hand your life over and hang on. Buckle down. Be prepared to enjoy the ride. When you get in a roller coaster car, you share in whatever that car experiences. And when you come to Jesus you have a share in him as well. You have a share in his forgiveness. You have a share in his grace. You have a share of his love. You have a share of his suffering, but you also have a share of his glory. The key to enjoying the ride is to hand it over and hang on. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for Jesus, our only Savior. We praise you for who he is. And I know, Lord, that it's easy to say this sermon about suffering when I'm all by myself in an empty room. But I pray, God, that as I encounter experience, as I encounter emotions, as I encounter others, as I encounter lack, as I encounter pain, as I encounter need and uncertainty, that you would remind me of the truth of your word. That you have a purpose and you've given us an approach. Help me to hand it over and hang on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.